This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, I'm Nicole Holliday, a linguistics professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm Ben Zimmer, language columnist for The Wall Street Journal. And this is Spectacular Vernacular, a podcast where we not only explore language, we also play with it. This week, we're joined by Gretchen McCulloch and Lauren Gahn, hosts of Lingthusiasm, a podcast that's enthusiastic about linguistics. And later on, we'll be challenging listener with an anagram quiz. So, Nicole, a few episodes ago, you did some on-the-ground reporting for us from the annual conference of the Linguistic Society of America in Washington, D.C., And uh, you told us about some fascinating linguistic research that's going on. But, you know, there was one presentation that I really wanted to hear about, and that was yours. Well, you know, since you asked, I guess we can talk about it. Well, I mean, even just the title of your talk was very intriguing. Your presentation was called Siri, You've Changed, Acoustic Properties and Racialized Judgments of Voice Assistants. So, yeah, it's about the voice assistant Siri that that runs on, you know, the Apple operating system. And I understand you were inspired to conduct this research project when a reporter from Consumer Reports reached out to you last year about new voices that were added to the virtual assistant Siri. So uh, what do these newly added voices sound like? Yeah. So it was very strange. I was like on vacation in Mexico and I got a media request, which I get sometimes from this reporter, Kave Waddell. And he said, you know, there's these new Siri voices in beta and people are saying they sound black. And I was like, what now? And so we talked about it for a while and he had me listen to them and I did. And I was like, something's going on here. So I said, well, you know, we can find out if they actually sound black. Like, I can run a study on this and, like, turn it around pretty quickly. Um, And I wanted to do it before it got out of beta because then everybody would have heard the voices. Um, So it was, like, very fast turnaround, but it was really fun. So I'll let you sort of have the experience that I had when I first uh, listened to the voices when he first played them for me. And the the ones we're going to hear are ones that I actually used in the experiment that I did. So the voices are reading a a common passage called the Rainbow Passage, and that's what you're going to hear the voices doing. So before the release of iOS 14.5 last year, there were two voices available on Siri if you chose American English as your setting. And one is the sort of standard original Siri voice, and it sounds female. When the sunlight strikes raindrops in the air, they act like a prism and form a rainbow. And then there's one that sounds male. The rainbow is a division of white light into many beautiful colors. So that male voice was added maybe a few years after the original female voice, right? Yeah, and I think in part due to sort of public criticism that all of the voice assistants were women. So this wasn't just Apple, but people started to notice that Alexa also sounded female. And so there was some pushback. And so that that's why I think they added this kind of second male voice. So it's been around for a while too. But then with this update that they gave us in 2021, users were now able to select two additional American voices. And like the originals, one of the new ones also sounds female. These take the shape of a long round arch with its path high above and its two ends apparently beyond the horizon. And the other new one sounds male. There is, according to legend, a boiling pot of gold at one end. People look, but no one ever finds it. 
When a man looks for something beyond his reach, his friends say he is looking for the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Yeah, so you mentioned that uh, they're all reading, you called it the rainbow passage, is that right? Yeah, and it's a passage that's kind of nonsensical, but it's specifically designed to include all the speech sounds of English. So it's really useful if what you're trying to do is test the overall perception of a voice. So you said these voices are available in the American English settings for Siri, right? But Apple also gives other options for varieties of English from other parts of the world? Yeah. So for English, there's a lot of options. Um, so there's Australian, British, Irish, South African, and Indian voices as well. And then there's lots of voices in other languages um, for Siri. And all of this uses the synthetic voice technology that we talked about back on our episode from December 21st, when we interviewed Rupal Patel from Vocal ID. And there's been more of an effort from Apple and other tech companies to make virtual voices that reflect the actual diversity of human voices. So when these new voices started emerging, I guess, just when this new uh, iOS was in beta and people were first hearing these new voices, what was the reaction like? Yeah, so as Kaveh Wadal reported in his article for Consumer Reports, the new voices got noticed when it was in beta, and that was the sort of the experience we had. Um, so one example was this PR manager from the Bay Area, Jason Allen, said that the new male voice stopped him in his tracks. Um, Alan is black, and he said, did I just hear a black male voice between those other voices? And he goes on to say, uh, a young black voice owning that role in a lot of people's homes is incredibly powerful. Yeah, I mean, especially since that, you know, original Siri voice that we kind of associate with Siri is kind of coded as a white woman. I can see how these new voices could really connect with a, a broader range of people's identities, let's say. So how did you end up conducting your research on this? Right. So from my uh, hotel in Cancun, I put together, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really, I put together a survey based on those audio clips we heard earlier. So Kavi Waddell had put, he had made the voices read the rainbow passage so that I could use them as stimuli in this experiment. And so with the four Siri voices producing the rainbow passage, I put together the survey and I sent it out to so 485 listeners, they were uh, American English speakers. And I found that by a significant margin, the two new voices are much more likely to be judged as sounding like black speakers. And the two original older Siri voices are heard as white speakers. Yeah, it's really fascinating because, I mean, these are computer generated voices, even though, you know, this technology can base these synthetic voices on individual voice actors, they're still, you know, synthesized. So it's kind of remarkable that people have such clear judgments about the the races or, or racial backgrounds of these virtual speakers. Yeah, and that's not all. People also make judgments about the personality types of these digital voices. And we find that those perceived traits align with the racialized identities that people impute to the voices. So unsurprisingly, this happens in ways that reinforce negative stereotypes. For example, the voice that is judged as a black male is also judged as funnier, but less competent, which is unfortunately the same kind of pattern we find for human voices. And so the bigger takeaway is that listeners really construct a whole identity and persona for digital voices in the same way they do for human ones. And they bring along all of their ideas about what humans are supposed to sound like when they have different identities and different personas and sort of place these ideas onto the digital voice assistants as well. So, Nicole, we've got some late breaking news to report. Uh, it's been revealed that in the next iOS, version 15.4, Siri is adding a fifth American English voice. This is what it sounds like. Hi, I'm Siri. Choose the voice you'd like me to use. 
Axios reports that this new voice is designed to be, quote, less explicitly male or female sounding. The Axios article also says that Apple confirmed the new voice was recorded by a member of the LGBTQ plus community, but did not offer further details. So this appears to be Apple's attempt to be more inclusive when it comes to gender identity. This is definitely a brave new world of linguistic research. And I guess as we all become more accustomed to interacting with these artificial voices, we're going to need to develop a whole new branch of human to non-human sociolinguistics. Yeah, and I've been getting more interested in this in, in sort of part of my research program. And I think that we're kind of headed that way in general. Well, after the break, we'll explore some more linguistic frontiers with our guests Gretchen McCulloch and Lauren Gaughan. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Spectacular Vernacular. Our guests today are Gretchen McCulloch and Lauren Gaughan, hosts of the podcast where they are enthusiastic about linguistics, lingthusiasm. Gretchen is the author of Because Internet, a New York Times bestselling book about internet language, and Lauren is a senior lecturer in linguistics at Australia's La Trobe University, where her research focuses on how people use gestures and grammar. Since starting their Lingthusiasm podcast in 2016, they've discussed linguistic topics for students and general audiences and have featured some of the foremost scholars in linguistics and related fields. I had the pleasure of speaking with them back in 2017, and we're so excited to have them here with us on Spectacular Vernacular. Welcome to the show, Gretchen and Lauren. Thank you so much for having us. So lovely to be here. Well, it's a real treat to be able to do a kind of a crossover episode, considering that the two of you are really old hands at the language podcast beat you know, you, you've been going at it for more than five years now. It's very impressive that you've, you know, had wonderful episodes, um, you know, regularly ever since uh, 2016. So tell us how you got started with Lingthusiasm. What were your original goals for the show? And what did you want your listeners to learn from the podcast? I think we were so excited that you guys were starting a podcast because we've been uh, massive Nicole and Ben fans since the beginning. <laughs> so we're delighted to get to be here and hang out. Lauren and I met each other via the internet. We both had linguistics blogs. Mine is all things linguistic and hers is Superlingo. And we started, you know, interacting with each other in the linguistics blogosphere back when that was more of a thing, I guess. And on Twitter, in an email, and then we finally met up in person at a conference for the first time, where we had actually proposed joint sessions so that we would have an excuse to finally hang out offline. And we started chatting as part of that. And both of us claimed that it was the other person's idea to start a podcast. <laughs> Uh, and so we've both been thinking, you know, I've been thinking about starting a podcast. I've been thinking about starting a podcast. And I think at the time, there weren't really a lot of language-based podcasts that were hosted by linguists. And there obviously are a lot now and have become a lot more in recent years. But at the time, there was sort of either very academic things that were hosted by linguists who were sort of doing stuff for a more local audience or stuff that was very focused on engaging a general audience, but was hosted by people who weren't necessarily expert themselves who were bringing in that 
expert approach. So for me, it was thinking, you know, when I go to parties and people find out I'm a linguist, they say, I've always wondered this question. Or like, maybe you can tell me why I have this type of difficulty when I'm learning another language. Or, you know, my kid says this cute thing. Is there a reason for it or something like that? And I would answer their questions and think, you know, I can't just go to all of the parties and always be the linguist answering the questions. So maybe we could bring some of that spirit to a podcast that people will be interested in listening in on. Once we started talking, we really just didn't stop talking about linguistics. And I have always, you know, even when I was studying as an undergraduate student, I would have to share what I'd learned that day in class for me. Studying linguistics has always been about sharing linguistics as well, and that hasn't stopped even all the way through to working at a university is a chance to share linguistics. And the the podcast for me is just another opportunity to keep talking about things I find fascinating. So over here at Spectacular Vernacular, sometimes we talk with linguists, but we're also big fans of language puzzles, so we do that too. I think Lingthusiasm is particularly great for those who w- might want a deeper dive on some of the more technical linguistics topics. For example, I really enjoyed your recent episode on waveforms and spectrograms and how we translate sound into visual signals. Can you give our listeners a taste of what it's like to break down some of these more academic topics for a podcast audience? Sure. It's always a deep dive on a very specific topic, but if we're extending the pool metaphor, it's a deep dive where we all have floaties and some other flotation devices to help keep us on topic and in one place and not drowning in terminology. I always like to think of the show as an opportunity to spend 30 minutes chatting about something that might just be a passing reference or a single slide in a lecture. If you're studying linguistics, you generally have to learn a lot about a lot of terminology and technical topics really quickly. And we get the chance to go, actually, this thing that would be like 10 seconds on slide three, let's just spend a whole bunch of time talking about why verbs are really important for the shape of a sentence. And we won't go into any of the other verb stuff you'd normally fit into that lecture. We're just going to talk about why verbs have this cool power and then focus in like that. I think one of the other things that we do, like one of the tips that I give people who are trying to think about breaking down complex topics is, so we have a half hour episode and you get one new piece of terminology max, sometimes zero pieces of terminology, most of the time one, and occasionally two if they directly contrast, but we really try to say, what's the one thing that we want to leave people knowing? So we did an episode a little while back about R and R-like sounds and the different types of R sounds in different languages and how they, you know, use different parts of the mouth and stuff like this. And it seems very Sesame Street because it's like, this episode is brought to you by the letter R and the number three. (laughs) Um, But also there's, you know, in a... In a phonetics class, you might be like, okay, we're going to introduce like the entire international phonetic alphabet. You know, here's this brief bit about R's, two minutes, and then and then you move on. We can say, let's just pause and think about all of the interesting things that we can think of to say about the letter R. Do you want to know our favorite one? Yes. <laughs> this is what people tweeted at us the most after this episode came up. So you know the character in Winnie the Pooh? That's the oh, donkey. Oh, I, yeah. I know where you're going with this one. <laughs> So if you're going to say that name in my English, I would say Eeyore, and that's just his name. If Lauren says it in her English... His name is Eeyore. It's the sound a donkey makes! Gretchen came to me with this fact when we were prepping the episode, and I was like, 
of course that's what he's called. That's what a donkey says. Uh, because as an Australian English speaker, I don't have R's at the end of words in the way that many North American English speakers do. And so sometimes it's fun to kind of contrast our linguistic experiences in that way. You've also had the chance to interview some pretty fascinating guests as well, in addition to explaining things yourself. So, you know, what are some of your favorite episodes where you've brought on special guests to help uh, illuminate linguistic topics? Well, I think, you know, present company accepted uh, <laughs> because Nicole was our very first interview when we had just bought the the mic that let us do uh, some more interviews. And we were like, Nicole will be great. So that one's really fun. Another interview that I really enjoyed that we did was interviewing Lin Ho. And this is our only bilingual episode so far. There may be others in the future. So Lena is a linguist at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and she's a deaf person and she researches American Sign Language and Chitino Sign Languages, Language and other sign languages in that context. And we wanted to do, people had been asking us for ages, can you talk more about sign languages? And we were like, yes, but we feel really weird about talking about sign languages in a format that's not actually accessible to deaf people. So we did this episode as a video interview with uh, Lena and an interpreter and also put it in the audio podcast feed, but we encourage people to watch the video interview. So the entire thing is also in ASL because, of course, I'm being interpreted as the interviewer as well. And it's got captions and, and various different formats. And it was really cool to learn all of this different stuff about her research and how she's doing research on like people using ASL on YouTube because you can sort of solve some of the naturalism problems by not bringing people into a lab and instead of researching stuff that's recorded. So there's a sort of internet language aspect of it as well. And then also how she's done fieldwork in sign languages and like various different topics within that. And it was just such a distinct format that it sticks out to me because we were thinking all also about sort of visually presenting the staging of that episode. So on top of the pod itself, there's also a whole Lingthusiasm extended universe, as I understand it. <laughs> Can you tell us about some of the other related projects you've been involved in? Our enthusiasm for linguistics knows no medium format boundaries. So uh, if there's a chance to share what we love about language and how it works in a format, we're generally up for it. So if you have some skywriting, I guess. We're there to see if we can turn that into a, a great Lincoln opportunity. Okay, Lauren, we did do some videos also. <laughs> we did do some videos. We we did start with some more more easily accessible formats. So uh, in 2020, we worked with the Crash Course team to, uh, for a series of videos that are on YouTube that are kind of 10-minute really quick introductions to major topics in linguistics. And we got to work with a really great team, including Taylor Benke, who's the host, and some really great animators to make it all come to life. And this was, I think, partly in response to people saying, you know, like, Lingthusiasm episodes are sort of random introductions to various snippets of linguistics things that we think are interesting. And this gives you a more systematic way of kind of going through that builds on each other a little bit more. And uh, we've heard to a lot of people who've been using it in, in their classes or have been using it to teach themselves various concepts, uh, which was very fun. And then we also put together some extra resources and exercises that people can do, because I think one of the things that's really challenging if you're trying to teach yourself more about linguistics online is that 
when I studied linguistics in school, I was doing a lot of problem sets and puzzles and like, you know, can I draw the tree of this sentence or can I do like transcribe this sentence or figure out what's going on with this data? And that's not something that you get to do as much if you're consuming linguistic content online. And I think that's where puzzles. So we were using the Olympiad puzzles, which is the thing that's used for high school students to get them interested in linguistics and sort of curating them uh, with the help of Liz McCullough, no relation, different spelling, who was putting together, you know, a paired puzzle with problem answer key that goes with each of those videos. So you can people can sort of follow along and do some puzzles. But that's also why I think it's very cool that you guys are focusing on word puzzles in Spectacular Vernacular, because that's a thing that sort of puzzling aspect of your brain is very linguistic. I should also mention that Gretchen's book because internet is also part of the Lingthusiasm extended universe. I've never got to say that I've made a cameo in a book before, but uh, I'm in there too, getting enthusiastic about linguistics and gesture. Yes, Lauren was was very helpful with the gesture in the emoji chapter, and so she she makes a cameo there. And some people think that, so I recorded the audiobook of Because Internet Myself, and I had a director who was sort of on the line with me while I was recording. And I think he was maybe a little bit surprised at how kind of energetic and enthusiastic I was by recording the audiobook because I was just sort of treating it like a giant extended enthusiasm episode. So, Gretchen, you mentioned your book Because Internet and lots about emoji in there. If anybody wants to know, you know, how emoji actually work, that's it's a great. A great book for that. And Lauren, you mentioned your work on gesture. And I think it's really cool that the two of you have been able to kind of combine forces and, you know, fuse these two interests. Could you tell us a little bit more about how the two of you have collaborated on thinking about emoji as gesture? Sure. The um, talking about things in a a general way, I just constantly chatting about linguistics has come full circle back into research, which is part of my day job. And we wrote a research paper to tease out some of the complexities of what Gretchen was trying to put together for the book around how emoji act with our written speech in the way that gestures act with our conversational speech in terms of being a kind of informal addition of this extra dimension that gives more information and helps people kind of express emotional content as well in what they're saying. I think it was really fascinating because I, you know, did two linguistics degrees, but I didn't learn about gesture in any of them. I didn't realize that there was a whole gesture literature that you could read and that you could understand gesture with sort of like different categories and different ways of saying, okay, well, these types of gestures in this context are keeping track of the beat of what someone's saying. These gestures are like depicting relatively literally or metaphorically what someone's saying. These gestures have their own sort of associated meaning, like a thumbs up or a wink or something like that, that's got its own specific name and its own specific meaning associated with it. And obviously I'd done these gestures, but I hadn't learned that they could all be belong to different types of categories. And so I think that for me, like, you know, when I first started learning linguistics, I was walking around being like, my tongue is touching the roof of my mouth right now. Whoa. And when I was, you know, and I'd had this experience when I was like 13 learning about linguistics. And then it was weird to have that experience just a few years ago when I thought I'd learned, you know, most of the general domains of linguistics, even if I don't always know the details, to have this experience in a whole other field where I was walking around, like looking at my hands again, being like, wait, and so then if I do this, or like trying to write because internet in a coffee shop and looking around the other tables and trying to like eavesdrop on the gestures that people were doing to sort of gather data, which is a very 
linguistic thing to do on the bus or something to get data that way and to have gestures sort of open up to me in the way that other parts of language had already opened up was a really fascinating thing to have going on. And at the same time thinking, okay, you know, if gestures have sometimes they're named and they have this very specific meaning and sometimes they're more general and sort of depictive, you can make that split in emoji as well. And Lingthusiasm has an online community too, right? So what's going on over there and where can our listeners find it? We've got a community on the Lingthusiasm patron Discord. So Discord is an online chat platform and it's kind of like Slack or IRC if people have used those as well. And people can get access to Lingthusiasm bonus episodes and join the community and do various other things that means that we don't have to run ads on the show. And I'm really excited about the Lingthusiasm patron Discord because One of the things that's come up for me in the like, oh God, 10 years that I've been doing (laughs) linguistics communication online is that people will be like, wow, I'm so excited about linguistics. Like, you know, but I don't have anyone to talk to about it. You know, how do I find someone else who wants to talk to me about this? And you can absolutely do things like join linguistics Twitter. I know all of us are active on linguistics Twitter. That's sort of how we know each other to a large degree. But it can be a bit hard to get started with a sort of public facing community like that if you're unsure where to get started. And the fun thing is, is like you pop into the Lingthusiasm patron discord and it's like people answering each other's questions about like where they can get more linguistics. And some we have like a foods channel and a pet channel, but then sometimes those turn into like, where the names for foods come from or like nerdy things you could name your pets. And like we have linguistics themed custom emoji in the Discord and stuff like that. Well, Gretchen McCulloch and Lauren Gon, thank you so much for joining us today. Is there anything else you want to share with our listeners? Yes, just encourage them to stay lingthusiastic. Well, thanks so much. We will stay lingthusiastic. We'll also stay spectacular in vernacular, I guess. <laughs> uh, well, after the break, it's time for some wordplay. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back. Now it's the time in the show where we play with language. For our wordplay quiz this week, we're very pleased to be joined by listener Monica Dongre of Raleigh, North Carolina. Welcome to the show, Monica. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Well, we're very excited to have you with us. So, Monica, as a puzzle guy, I'm always looking for anagrams and that sort of thing. I I can't help it. I can't turn off that part of my brain. And I couldn't help but notice that your name is very anagram-friendly. Uh, Those letters, M-O-N-I-C-A, your first name, D-O-N-G-R-E, your last name, they're just great fodder for making anagrams. Have you ever tried anagramming your name? You know, I haven't. I know that my name backwards is Akinam, but that's about it. That's the only thing I've ever thought to do. If you put your name into an online anagram generator, you'll get things like demonic groan, menacing door, dragon income, and crooning dame. Maybe that last one is a good fit if you like karaoke. (laughs) 
I don't think anybody wants to hear me sing karaoke. Well, another interesting anagram of your name is Dancing Romeo. And that one is particularly cool because it's actually the title of a short comedy film from 1944. In fact, it was the very last short that was made in the Our Gang series, uh, which was called Little Rascals when it was syndicated on TV. Did you grow up watching The Little Rascals? I think I might be a bit too young for The Little Rascals, or perhaps I'm not aware of it because we did not have cable TV when I was growing up. Well, in Dancing Romeo, the character Froggy, who's the kid with the croaky voice, has a crush on a girl named Marilyn, and he tries to impress her with his dance moves. Froggy! So, Monica, that puts you in a very special group of people whose names are anagrams of movie titles. Another example appeared in a recent cryptic crossword in The New Yorker, created by friend of the pod Neville Fogarty. Neville discovered that Robin Leach, the guy who used to host Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, is an anagram of Nacho Libre, the Jack Black movie about Mexican wrestlers. And sometimes people's names are anagrams of song titles. For a previous wordplay challenge, listeners had to figure out that the great jazz musician Fats Waller anagrams to the name of the hit song by TLC, Waterfalls. So Monica, for your quiz, we're going to ask you to figure out the names of famous people who are anagrams of movie or song titles. How does that sound? It sounds really challenging, but I'll do my best. My pop culture knowledge dropped off when I had kids. <laughs> Don't worry, we'll, we'll help you along the way. Okay, here's your first one. There's a Japanese anime series that's also been made into a couple of movies called Eureka 7. If you anagram Eureka 7, you'll get the name of a famous actor. And he's famous for saying one word in particular, and that word is whoa. 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 Yeah. Oh my gosh. I have no idea. Well, I can tell you some of the movie roles of this actor have included... Ted Logan, John Wick, and Neo, if that helps. Oh, Keanu Reeves. There you go. Well, next up, we've got a title that's been used for both a movie and a song. Love in Store was the name of a Hallmark movie in 2020. But before that, Fleetwood Mac had a hit with that title back in 1982. If you rearrange the letters of a love in store, you get the name of a famous director whose movies include Platoon, JFK, and The Doors. I think I need more hints on this one as well. I don't know movie directors. Let's see. His, uh, his last name is a word that's synonymous with rock. Okay, so something stone. There you go. First name begins with O. Oliver Stone. Yeah. Yeah, and, I mean, we can keep talking about Keanu Reeves all day. It turns out that he turned down the role that Charlie Sheen played in Platoon and also auditioned for the Jim Morrison role that Val Kilmer played in The Doors. So there's a Keanu Reeves-Oliver Stone connection. Next up, we've got a song title for you to anagram. Where Do I Go is a song from the musical Hair. Where do I go? Follow the river. Where do I go? Follow the gulls. Where is the something? 
Where is there someone that tells me why I live and die? If you anagram where do I go, you'll get the name of a hockey player. And this is a hockey player who was so famous in his sport that his nickname was just Mr. Hockey. Is it Howie Good? Oh, you're so close. His last name sounds like a question, but it's not who, what, when, where, or why. Oh, something how. Right. His last name is spelled H-O-W-E. Gordy Howe. Gordy Howe is right. And okay, Monica, we've got one more for you. There's a song by the Jackson 5 that came out back in 1970 called Darling Dear. The game of love is such a beautiful game. If you've got time to go, I'd like to explain. Rearrange the letters of Darling Dear and you'll get the name of a famous comedian who was in the original cast of Saturday Night Live. I feel like I need so many, so many clues on these. So it's a woman, if that helps. Gilda Radner. Yay, you got it. <laughs> yeah, we were going to tell you that, uh, you know, she was famous for playing characters on SNL like Emily Latella and Roseanne Rosanna Dana, but you didn't even need that help. You got it. Darling dear anagrams to Gilda Radner. There you go. Well, you did a great job with that, Monica. And now we've got a challenge for all of our listeners. In 1931, John Barrymore starred in a movie called Svengali, where he played a character named, you guessed it, Svengali. If you rearrange the letters S-V-E-N-G-A-L-I, you can get the name of not one but two famous musicians. One of them is a jazz arranger and pianist who often worked with Miles Davis. The other musician is also a piano player and is famous for composing movie scores, like Chariots of Fire. Think you've got it? Send your answer to us at spectacular at slate.com with quiz in the subject line of your email. Please include the names of both musicians who you can anagram from Svengali. From the correct entries, we'll randomly select a winner who will receive a Slate Plus membership for one year. Or if you're already a Slate Plus member, you'll get a one-year extension on your subscription. Once again, that's spectacular at slate.com with quiz in the subject line. And please respond by midnight Eastern time on March 9th. And we're very pleased to announce the winner of the challenge from our February 15th episode. Christopher Ross of Stonington, Maine, figured out the answer to the question posed by Peter Gordon. The historical figure with initials SV, who is commemorated in the month of February, is none other than St. Valentine. Congratulations, Christopher. Thanks for joining us, Monica. Thank you so much. I had a great time. That's it for this week. We hope you've enjoyed the show. And please consider subscribing to Slate Plus. Slate Plus members get benefits like full access to all the articles on Slate.com, zero ads on any Slate podcast, and bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and One Year. It's only $1 for the first month. To learn more, go to slate.com slash spectacular plus. Thanks again to Gretchen McCulloch and Lauren Gowan for being our guests this week. Spectacular Vernacular is produced by Jasmine Ellis. June Thomas is senior managing producer for Slate Podcasts. 
We'll be back in two weeks with more spectacular vernacular. Thanks for listening.